So we met uh, Saran Rabani over the weekend, and he's one of the graduates of Hunter of the college, and he's working as an imam in Glasgow. And uh, he's uh, going to spend the next half hour reflecting really on his life journey, uh, on beginning his uh, island studies, and then going through the various phases uh, of which he explained to you, and then what he's doing now. Thank you. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Salatu wassalamu ala ashraf al-anbiya ibn mursaleen amma ba'd. Um, so, assalamu alaikum everyone. Everyone kind of knows me. So, I am going to just to kind of briefly explain my back. I think there's some on the sheet. Um, so, I'm just going to give a, contextualize a bit uh, about my background. And then uh, we'll go into the, the some of the, uh, the roles of an imam. I'm going to look at some of the positive aspects or positive things which imams have done, which we don't really hear much. Uh, some of the, obviously, the dark and negative side, and some of the challenges that the imams are going to face. Um, so, I, my father was a scholar. He studied in Pakistan. He was from a very poor background. Um, they were all farmers and stuff. Uh, my mom's side are very rich, so when my dad graduated, my granddad was a very religious man and he was in the UK since 665 and he thought, I'm going to marry my oldest daughter to her third cousin who has graduated from a seminary. So my dad never came over as an imam, he just came over as what we would say a mangator, I think, yeah, as, as a married man. Um, he worked in the shop for 15-20 years. Um, and during that time he would teach kids in the evening because um, he, had, he had studied and he taught kids in the evening and slowly we had Taraweeh prayers in our house in our living room, you know, every Ramadan people would pray Taraweeh and then over time uh, people kind of supported my father and they all thought, listen, we're going to buy a building for uh, mosque purposes so dad bought the building, he appointed a few trustee members and alhamdulillah that's where the mosque I am now you have no committee, no uncles, no problems of that sort because essentially we have my dad's there and, and a good good bunch of people who are kind of advising him so uh, at the age of 11 I was sent to a boarding school in Jamia Al-Karam in Nottinghamshire that was because um, where I was born in the south side of Glasgow, Pollock Shields, um, unfortunately it's not a very friendly place to grow up and all my cousins were doing weird and wonderful things so my dad thought I'm going to send my 10 year old child to a boarding school. Um, I was sent to a boarding school, Alhamdulillah I had good GCSEs and stuff and uh, I actually wanted to leave and do law um, so our, our teacher there and principal, Sheikh Bizada, he had this view from the 80s that Pakistani ulama are not the answer to British Muslims. We need to uh, produce homeschooled Muslims, uh, homebred kind of scholars. And uh, one of his ideas was in Jamal Karam, so we can have good secondary school system in which the kids do well, but instead of going to colleges, then they move on to their Sunzami. So I finished good, with good GCSE results, and uh, he came up to me one day and he said, uh, so Hassan, what do you want to do? Go, go and study law? I mean, you know, I, I find that interesting. And he said to me, uh, I'm going to lock you up and beat you up until you are ready to become, become an imam. I mean, it wasn't literally saying that, but it's like you need to become one. So I went home and I talked to my dad and I said, Dad, I'm going to do Islamic studies later. I'm going to go uni first and college and have, you know, uh, you know, my dad didn't have a, a very comfortable life. But, you know, I want to make a good, comfortable living and then work on deen. And as Asian parents, he said to me, 
that guy's son there, he was planning to do the same, but he never got back into religious studies. I don't want to lose you as well. So I thought, Alhamdulillah. So I went back, I did my first year, and it was up and down. Uh, uh, because I think the talk is recording, so I'm not going to uh, confess to anything. But it was a bit of a roller coaster the first year. I couldn't settle down. You know, my heart wasn't totally in it. But Alhamdulillah, I came to second and third year. I really picked up on my studies. I finished Jamia al-Karam, with a, came second in the class, and uh, uh, I was told that I can go to Azhar in Cairo for four years. I spent uh, four years in Cairo. Uh, Alhamdulillah, my father and my mother supported me all the way. Um, I would spend about two, two and a half thousand pounds a year. The education system, Azhar, is free. In fact, not many people know, but Azhar have a brilliant system. They have uh, something called Madinatul Ba'uth, which is a, a city which hosts 6,000 students from African countries, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, in which the students don't pay a penny to accommodation, bills are paid for, they get food twice a day, and they get pocket money, £20 a week. Uh, but because we were from the West, so they said education system is free, but you need to sort your own accommodation out. So I had a few friends and we hired a few um, flats. I lived in really good, really good accommodation. But one year I thought, yeah, you know what, let's just try the rough piece of Cairo. Anyone been to Cairo here? Yes. Yeah, so I've been to Al Hussein uh, Khani Khalili. Yes. Yeah, so behind Khali Khalili is an area called Darasa, the probably perhaps the poorest area in Cairo. Really bad. So me and my friend moved there for six months. Right? Our rent was fifteen pound a month, you can tell. We had no cold, we had no hot water, so we used when showering we used to warm up warm up the cold water. Uh, we didn't have no fridge, we had like a travel uh, abuba. Like a gas can and we used to cook on that. We had a goat for some reason living on top of us <laughs> and we used to feed it sometimes. So I was there for six months just to see the rough life and mama, mama and my dad came after Hajj in 2009 to meet me. Mom started crying and saying, you know, where are you living in? The... So I moved from there right next to City Stars and that flat was about £500 a month. So it's a huge contrast. Well, alhamdulillah, I learned a lot in, in, in Al-Azhar. I think one of the reasons, uh, one of the good things of Azhar is that uh, and I'm going to be very critical of my background. Um, one of the uh, probably c- critical things I can say about Darshan Nizami system is that it's very polemical. And generally Pakistani Indian ulama are very polemical, very fiery. And it's not, it's not they're like that, that's how they're taught, that's how the system is. So one book we studied, which was Usul al-Shashi, in a book on Usul al-Fiqh, it's a comparison between Hanfi Usul and Shafi'i Usul. And each time we would study the Shafi'i Usul, like, yeah, Imam Shafi makes his argument, but you can silence him with the argument of Abu Hanifa. You can silence, and then Shafi would reply, well, you can silence him again. It was almost like, you know, Shafi is just arguing for the sake of it. When we came to Azhar, Azhar is very different, because you study the four schools with, res- not with respect, and you know, all four of them are right. So in my fifth classes, we studied the four schools of thought, and the Ja'fari, the, the Shia school, what they said. And the teacher at the end would say, um, I think in this issue, the Malikis are right, not the Hanfis for various reasons. So it was good, it was quite uh, diverse. Um, so that really changed me when I went to Azhar. And I think there's a shame with a lot of Darul students who don't go to study abroad um, because, because they come out of the Dersen Islami system, so generally they are very fiery and polemical. Hence the YouTube videos and the, all of this stuff. Whereas the Azri scholars are calm, collective. Uh, so that was one good thing. So when I came back, I finished in 2010. I, I, I worked for a year with the school that I taught at. Then I had a master's scholarship in Aberdeen for Islamic studies. I went there. And to be honest, it was a waste of time. 
I didn't learn anything in my Masters of Islamic Studies, wishy-washy Islam taught by non-Muslim academics. Uh, very frustrated. My The only good thing was my dissertation. My dissertation was on uh, temporary marriage in Islam, uh, uh, a contrast between uh, Sunni uh, and Shia view on mut'a marriage. So three months I researched on mut'a marriage, uh, which is very interesting. Um, that was the only good thing. So then I came back to CMC and I got married that year. Uh, my wife's a GP doctor and she had two years of GP training left. I thought, cool, I can go anywhere. You each stay in Manchester. So that year I came to CMC, alhamdulillah. Uh, CMC was good because when I came back from, I had been listening to Sheikh Abdul Hakim when I was 17. So he was like the ideal for me. I wasn't like any other Pakistani scholar. I thought, this guy, this is how I want to be like in the West. Very good academic background very solid in the tradition and he's able to give a good in-depth um, argument uh, and analysis to things. I thought this one would be but I was really disillusioned when I did my masters in Islamic studies. I thought if this is what academia is, sort of this, I don't want to really do it. So when I came to CMC, Alhamdulillah uh, firstly the, 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 the modules that were taught were brilliant and I got to meet a lot of academics. So a lot of the people who taught us were from Cambridge and others were like good Muslim scholars who actually studied ab abroad. So while I here talking to Sheikh Abdul King and a few others, I thought, hmm, I think philosophy is interesting. I've studied it in Cambridge. I've got a traditional background that even if I do study philosophy, not that I'm going to become an atheist. So I can, I can be brave enough and kind of step in the pond without getting my clothes wet. So, uh, so after I finished CMC, I went and I did uh, a master's in philosophy. And all behind this, my parents have been immensely supportive. My wife has been immensely supportive. Uh, she realized I couldn't work in these two years. My parents realized that. So alhamdulillah, um, they've been very supportive of me. Um, so I, I just recently mm -hmm. finished that. Um, so I'm an imam in my, my dad's essential mosque. I'm self-employed so I can lead all the namaz in one day and the next day not even turn up for one namaz. My dad's not going to say anything, and that's how our mosque is. Uh, we do two Jumas, one Jumas in Urdu, that is it, one's in English, I do it, and I do some Durus. Uh, one of the things I've been working on, I'll talk to you later on, is the, the Madrasa system. Um, okay, so that's a, kind of a, a bit about my, my background. Um, so moving on to some of the positive things. So I think the Imams have done a lot of good work, and I think it's important to uh, understand the positive aspects. Um, generally, anything goes wrong in the community, the first people that we point fingers to is the Imam is so and so. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting just to look at the, some of the positive that I've done and we've got mashallah some elders here in the community and maybe they probably know better than me some of the positive and the negative things. Um, the people before they were much more young so they didn't really challenge me so maybe you guys can challenge me more. Uh, but I think uh, some of the positive things with our Pakistani ulama is when they came in the 70s a lot of uncles at that time came to England and obviously they're in Britain, you know, you can, there's alcohol and there's ladies and stuff like that. And a lot of the uncles got up to no good, so the ulama came and their aim was that the community who has come from Pakistan to England to kind of sort them out. They never anticipated to bring their children up because, and I believe that wasn't the job of Pakistani ulama. They came here to deal with the problems of the first community. Um, their job wasn't to teach their kids, that, that was the job of the community to produce British ulama who can, uh, who can deal with the kids, something that I'll touch on later. So they did that, and uh, the elders built mosques, alhamdulillah, you know, uh, UK again uh, is a new land, you know, they had to support families back home, but yeah, alhamdulillah, they came, came with strong religion. 
that we're going to build mosques, we're going to learn the Qur'an, um, uh, and so forth. And one of the good aspects, I think, of the mosque, which is, in hindsight, is failing now, but it was to teach the kids Qur'an without them having to understand Arabic. Imams thought, we can't teach everyone Arabic. It's impossible. What The least we can do is, at least people know how to read the Qur'an. So, you know, we had the Qaeda, and kids would come to mosque, they would learn. So at least later on in life, you want to study Arabic, you can, but at least you know how to read the Qur'an. You know, at least protect that heritage, which Alhamdulillah they did. And obviously, they're still doing now, which now I feel we need to move on. So I think they, those are maybe some of the positive aspects um, that, that of our Imams. Obviously, our Imams were thrown into an, an alien environment. They tried their best. Um, obviously, this has been some negative impacts. And one of the negative impacts is the teaching methods which were employed in Pakistan were employed here in UK. So when you went to Madrasa, I went to... I didn't, my dad didn't teach me because I used to... I, I wasn't a good student, so he sent me to a local other mosque and the imam used to beat me up. Um, so I thought to myself, um, inshallah, when I grow up uh, and I teach, I'm not going to do anything like this to my children or not others. And number two, I felt it was a strict adherence to culture. Uh, our ulama did, so they didn't embrace it. They rarely see a Pakistani scholar within Trousen Shah, never do it. And you can probably understand the context they're coming from, because in Pakistan at that time, the, the British were looked at as a, the, the enemy, the, the colonialist. We, we don't want to learn the language, we don't dress the way they dress, you know, they are the other enemy. So when they came here, and they, they brought that along with them. Uh, another problem was the imported sectarianism. So perhaps the greatest schism which happened in the subcontinent was the Diobandi and Bareilly split. The problem with that is uh, it was transported here. You know, we're thousands of miles away from Bareilly and Diobandi. I've never been to uh, the graduates, never been to it. But the thing is, they were fed with that narrative to the extent second and third generation scholars feel they need to preserve their Diobandi and Bareilly identity. Again, something that I believe was uh, important and, 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 and a negative um, aspect. So there's some of the positive and negatives. And you, you probably have a longer list because obviously I wasn't alive. In, I wasn't there in the 70s, 80s. You guys, some of you were here, so you have probably much more to say than, than me. I only can say what I saw in my father and, and some of his colleagues. Uh, some of the, the, the challenges that I'm going to touch on, which I think are important. Um, the, the first challenge is... Um, the first challenge is obviously the madrasa system, and this is what something I've been passionate about and working. Now, uh, I, like many other students, I learned French in year seven. It was only for one year, one hour a week, and I can still remember my French numbers. Uh, I can still ask, you know, what's your name? Uh, how are you? Comment tu Hassan? I still remember that, and it was only a few hours I studied French. Our kids go into madrasas at the age of seven and leave at sixteen, and they don't know one word of Arabic which is absolutely disgusting, like two hours a day, so many years, and they don't know how to say yes or no in, in Arabic. So that's been a total failure for the madrasa. Number two, uh, the ulama, unfortunately, when they were thrown into the big hole, they had to manage a, a class of 70 kids. How can you teach 70 kids? No way. Right? I, I, before I started my curriculum, I used to teach kids like that. The way the madrasa, most of the systems run is you've got a class of kids, each one of them are a different part of the Qur'an. They're going to come and read to you, because you've only got an hour and a half, you need to listen to another 40. You're going to send that one back, 
And because this young chap has read his sabak and he doesn't know what to do now, he's going to talk to his neighbors. And for the next 15 minutes, he's going to be heard, Chupkar, Chupkar, read your sabak, don't do this, don't do that. So he only spends two minutes with, with, with the Imam, actually, and the rest is gone to waste. Which is, again, it's a huge failure uh, in our madrasa system. And I don't think the imams are entirely blamed. I think the blame should go on the local teacher, Muslim teachers, local professionals, who should have stepped into the mosques and helped these imams. Because they're from Pakistan, they didn't know how the system is. So they should have helped and said, oh, this is how you teach. These are the methods of teaching, you know, to bring some professionalism into that. Uh, that didn't happen. So the madrasa system for me really failed. So when I came back from Egypt, uh, I did my philosophy degree. I thought I need to sort a madrasa system out. I need to do it in a way which is uh, it's just, uh, similar to the school system, so uh, students take it very seriously. Um, and uh, I, I did a lot of travelling. I spent up to a thousand pounds in my own pocket buying other different curriculums. I went as far as Southampton to see every mosque, try to see every mosque, what are the mosques doing, how they're engaging in, in their madrasa system. I, I spent a lot of time. And I came up with a system, I had some timetables, I left them in my car. So what I thought was that firstly a class needs to be limited to at least 20 students, you can't teach more than 20, everyone has to be on one level, so I had bunches of year 7s, year 8s. Number two, I thought we need to critically engage with the children. You, you don't know how clever a child is through reading the Quran, you never, you never know how he is. So one of the things what I did was, first 20 minutes, so it was four days, so this, I've started a month, alhamdulillah, 25 students, I've got a lot on the, on the waiting list. So the, the first 20 minutes we read the Qur'an, one ayah each, including me, um, and I have a very friendly relationship with the kids. It's not like an ustad and a teacher, each time I come in and the students stand up, and you know, you know how the Pakistani culture is, it's very different. And Alhamdulillah, a good rap with the children to the extent one of the children a couple of weeks ago were involved in drugs, not him, but his cousin. And before phoning anyone else, he phoned me. He said, Imam Saab, can you sort, sort this out? Man, I just messed up a little bit. So I stepped in and I sorted out. So that's the kind of uh, relationship I have with the kids. And the aim is to take these year seven and eight year olds and, and keep them until they get into uni. So we have an intimate, good group of Muslims that they're in touch with the mosque and, and with the Imam. So I thought, okay, first 20 minutes, we're going to do the Qur'an together. Are we going to read that? Are we going to finish up? So it's a five-year syllabus from 11 to 16. Then we have the main class. And so we have Islamic studies. One day we have Sira. There's a good doctor, I forgot his name. He published a Sira book called The Revelations in America. It's a, big, it's a brilliant Sira. What's it? Yeah, with maps. Uh, kids love it. Uh, it's really good. So although it was £70, I bought that. Um, just to show the kids. And then uh, Wednesdays we do philosophy for kids. So there's a guy called Matthew Lippmann in America who said that mainstream schools are failing because they've taken uh, philosophy out. They're not, they're not thinking. So I did a lot of research on that and I joined the Philosophy Foundation. I bought a lot of books and stuff and I started teaching kids philosophy once a week. I didn't call it philosophy because it's, it's got a lot of kind of negative stuff, so I call it critical thinking. Um, and the way everything is set out in the books, you, you, tell, you tell the kids a story, you get them to critically engage, and then you answer questions. So for instance, one we did was on teleology, right, the purpose of things. So the story starts, there's a group of ants, they're sitting together and they ask each other, what's our purpose of life? 
One says, oh, we're here to build colonies. Another says, oh, we're here to pick up rubbish and this and that. Then an ant explorer who has traveled everywhere comes back and says to the ants, listen, the reason we are here is to be food for ant eaters. Um, so it was a story like this. Then you critically engage the children. You think, so what's the purpose of ants? Right? Why they create? And they'll give you various questions. Then you move on to the purpose of man. What's our purpose here? Um, who gives us this purpose? Is it something which is external, which we believe is God? Um, so it's very interesting to see the kids' answers. One of the kids' answered was, uh, my purpose, God's given me the purpose that I need to study. Uh, I need to educate myself. And the next question was, are you fulfilling this purpose? He says, yes, I am. I go during the school, during the day, and I come to Madrasa during the evening. And the kid actually left happy because he feels now he is fulfilling his, his purpose. So critical thinking, I think, is very important. And especially now with ISIS and stuff like that, people are developing a lot of stuff in Islamic studies. I don't believe that. I think if you give students critical thinking, if they can think for themselves, right, they can defeat that. So one week I missed critical thinking that, and the kids were like, why are we not doing critical thinking? We really enjoy that. Um, so that, that's one lesson that on Wednesday. And on Thursday afternoons we did was activity writing. I would play uh, a short clip on a projector and we would have some answers. So I recently played a trip about the Sahabi tree in Jordan. The kid loved it, and then we had some answers. Uh, we, another one was about the relics in the Top Kapi Museum. Again, I, I showed them pictures because I'd been to Turkey, and I said one day we'll go. So the kids loved it. Uh, we're coming up to end of semester. We've got a trip to a charity who deals with the homeless. I want the kids to kind of be engaged with kind of social, uh, social uh, projects. Uh, teaching kids help the homeless doesn't really impact them but if you take them to a charity who deals with homeless and see how things are going on um, that happens now for me it was a passion and because of that I spent a lot of money and I spent a lot of time I'm sliding out getting backaches literally like this year every weekend I've been up and down I've been to Birmingham Southampton London Blackburn Batsley People are doing immense work. The problem is there's no networking. I went to Batsley. There's a girl called Suzanne Carr. She's a convert. She's working with SEN, kids, kids with special needs. Kids who uh, have such disabilities, you would think, and me and you saw them, that they, they'll never read the Quran. And I was touched to see that these kids are actually reading the Quran. So this, she comes to British Muslim TV. You've probably seen her with a puppet. She teaches Quran. So she's developed books. She's developed an app. She developed how kids play with Play-Doh with Arabic, but there's immense thing happening. But to me, I think uh, the, the English Muslims are very kind of segregated compared to the Scots. Right? After Batley, I go down to Bradford, a big Bradford mosque, and I go pray there. And I say to them that this is happening in Batley, and they are bewildered. They have no idea down the road in Batley, someone is doing that work. I'm like, you can go to Blackburn, there's a good Abu Hanifa Foundation, they're doing excellent work. You can come down to uh, Royston, these, these guys are doing excellent work. No one knows, and this guy in Glasgow knows everything that's happening. So I spent a lot of time, a lot of miles, um, uh, to do all of this work. And uh, this is something I'm extremely passionate about that I've, I've shared with others. Um, I have no official salary from the mosque because it's my dad mosque and my dad feels that if I didn't get a salary you shouldn't. So the, the kids fees is very substantive, 25 pound a month. So on paper I'm actually only, my, my wage is 500 pound a month, literally. Um, the rest, alhamdulillah, my wife supports me and I have some, uh, some guys who support me in my project. I started something called the Zainab Kobol Institute. Zainab Kobol is an interesting woman. 
She was a Scottish convert in the early 19th century. She was the first woman on record as a convert to perform Hajj. She wrote a book called Pilgrimage to Mecca, which was published in the 1940s. Um, the press were, gave it remarkable kind of reviews. I've read the entire book myself. So for me, when, before starting the classes, I thought to myself, we need Scottish identity. So I thought Zainab's Kobol is very good in that. She was an early Scottish Muslim who talked about identity and, and being a Muslim and so forth. So I had some good brothers, friends that I knew when I was young who were pharmacists and doctors who put the trust in me and said, that, listen, you do your work, inshallah, and we will try our best to, to finance um, that as, as we can. So I think that's one major challenge the madrasas. I think madrasas have failed. I think now curriculums are coming out. I think they've failed. Everyone's saying we've got an Islamic curriculum, number one. I, there's so many Islamic curriculums, we don't need a curriculum, we need a broad syllabus. Number two, you're producing curriculums, you have no idea the level of teachers. Right? Sheikh Abdul Hakim can produce a curriculum. Wow, but have we have capable students who can teach Sheikh Abdul Hakim's curriculum? That's another question. So a lot, a lot, of, a lot of people are doing syllabus and I, I'm not really buying into that. Um, when I teach I-syllabus, they've also uh, produced a curriculum. Again, it's a very narrow, as Islamic studies as well as. I want to engage kids more. I, need, I want them to understand, uh, have a good background in literature. So with Dr. Atif, I was sat down yesterday talking about this. What books can I teach them in literature? I want them to know history, Ottoman history, Mughal history, Safavid history, history of Muslim Spain, have a good background um, on that. So it's very holistic, a five-year <coughs> syllabus, uh, which I'm working on and, and tweaking and changing. So I think that's one challenge and probably finishing off. Uh, one more is technology. Uh, one, one problem with the imams is that a lot of them do, do uh, speeches in Urdu. Uh, something very interesting I saw in, in a mosque, um, uh, I think it was in Bradford when I went to pray Jum'ah. Because the imam was speaking in Urdu, on Facebook there's, um, there's an option now, you can live stream on your phone, on your Facebook page. Literally, if I can take my camera, I, I can just record you guys and everyone who's my friend on Facebook can see that. A lot of imams are doing that in Bradford, popular imams. So there's one Bradford mosque I went to, because the imam was doing khutban Urdu, this young guy was sitting at the back and just listening to the Juma speech. And as soon as the speech finished, the imam's speech finished, so he prayed his Juma and off he went home. So he's literally in the mosque, because he's not engaged, the imam's not engaging with the child, like before the children used to just mess about, now there's an alternative which Facebook has provided. So this is an increase, no one comes to the mosques, uh, everything is on YouTube now and I sometimes have led Zuhr and Asr Jamaat and honestly the only reason why our mosques are there because our uncles in our society, Alhamdulillah, our Buzurg, who come and regularly pray namaz, otherwise only, on, only Jumu'ah. There's a mosque again in Bradford which is about two, three thousand people, when I read namaz there, Zuhr only had 20 people. I said to him, why do you build a mosque, but this is how much we have in Jumu'ah. And it just sounds a bit like the churches, isn't it? Just once a week on Sunday. So the, the, the mosques are, are, are I, I believe, are shaping out like that. Uh, I, I would say that the Diobandi school have done very well with their kind of children. So I've been to a lot of Diobandi mosques. Their mosques are generally much more full with young people reading uh, namaz and salah uh, and compared to some of the, the other mosques that we have. Uh, 
One more thing, maybe, I think uh, uh, traditional mosques, people would reach out to the mosque, come to the mosque, talk to the imam. I think the role has reversed. People, need, imams need to reach out to the, to the society. So one of the things that I was doing, uh, now I do it, is once a week I volunteer in the biggest uh, hospital in Glasgow as a, as a Muslim imam chaplain. I just go around visiting people. Um, I also do some chaplaincy with the, the prison. Again, it's, it's voluntary. And I do some projects with local charities. Uh, and I think imams really need to do that. You can't sit in the four mosques, uh, the four walls in a mosque, and think, yes, people are going to come to you with your their problems, and you know they're going to take you as a supreme leader. No one really cares. You need to go out and reach to people. So I feel this is some of the ways that I could I could uh, reach out to the people. But in the same way, I would sympathise with the ulama because the Pakistani ulama cannot do that because. If I ask you, give me a description of an imam's role, would you be able to give me one? Very difficult. One of the main roles is read five-time namaz. How can you lead five-time namaz and do anything else? Like you have Zohar, you have lunch by the time, oh my God, it's Asr again, then it's Maghrib, then it's Nisha. So the whole day is basically an imam's. So when I talk to people, I say, listen, you don't need an imam to do jamaat. You can have a normal brother who's got good tajweed to lead the jamaat, where the imam can do some more important things, right? Maybe limit him to maghrib or even isha or just fajr or isha. That way his whole day is, is not taken up into uh, all that. Um, when I, I was given, uh, I was gone to Southampton Mosque, they, they wanted me to become an imam there, so I just went for the weekend um, to check out. One good thing we had was school visits from local grammar schools. We had three classes, four classes come in. Little children, year seven, year eight, non-Muslims. The only time, the middle, middle class, the only time they're going to be exposed to Islam is the mosque. So they came in, I got into the topi, got into the hijab, read through nafal. Because I felt Islam, let's experience it. I don't want to teach you uh, Islam is five pillars and this and that. So we did that, after that, they just threw around the mosque. They looked at stuff, they're like, why do you have five clocks here? I was like, because we have five different prayer times. So each clock tells you of a different prayer time. So we're very inquisitive minds. But I thought to myself, this is brilliant because this is the only time they're going to learn about Islam. If it's a positive experience, then as they grow up, they want to think positively. That's how Thampton Mosque has over 120 school visits a year from non-Muslims. So that's one thing I think imams can really engage with is local uh, schools and stuff. Um, I think f- finishing off, uh, I would say there's positives, there's negatives and there's challenges. The challenges only British Imams, I feel, can step up to the challenges is the nature of the challenge. But they're not going to do that. Because I know many friends like me who have good traditional and, sec- uh, and academic background because of the wages that Imams have. A lot of them have gone into hospitals. A lot of them have become, gone into prisons. Become my, my cousin who studied with me in Azhar did a PGC, became a teacher. It's brilliant, but we need these guys in the mosques, right? We need to develop the mosques. The only way that's going to happen if we bring that talent back, but they're not going to work for £200, £250 a week. And one of the reasons I feel that Pakistani ulama are still here is not because the imams, it's because of the committees. They feel that they can save money by employing a, a, a Pakistani imam. So until that changes, um, I, I don't really, really, really see things um, which, are, which are actually going to, going to change. So anyway, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to open for question and answers and observations and uh, some things may, you might have to share uh, because some of you obviously have much more experience than me with imams. And, uh, Let me just ask for a clarification first. There's 25 children you work in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Uh, they attend a normal school and yeah. then they come to Madrasa to you in the afternoon. They come between 5 and half past 6. 
Now one thing I've realized is that kids who come after school are very tired. So I am trying to shift this to a weekend school. So if they're week, if the evenings are free, because when I was a kid, and I used to go to mosque, I used to see the non-Muslim kids playing. I was like, I wish I was a non-Muslim, I wouldn't have to go to mosque, you know. So I, I don't want kids to have that experience. So my aim is trying to shift it to the weekend. But to make it more enjoyable, I know kids right now, a few girls this week, who missed school, but they came to the mosque because they enjoyed the mosque more. So Alhamdulillah, if you can have that kind of environment, then, then why not? Yeah, it's what the experience is. I'm afraid, you know, I'm one of those people who went to Madrasa from three years of age to, I don't know, 11 or 12 or whatever, and I never came up knowing uh, Nam or whatever in I, Arabic. I, I went through the same system. I didn't know anything until I went to Egypt. I 100% I mean, agree with that. And, and I tried to change it for my children. Um, and, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it, it is... It's, you know, you have to have the environment, you have to have the, 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 the children, other children wanting to do the same and so on and so forth. Um, I, I really want to focus on, on, the, on, the, on the challenges side of it, in the sense that if you have um, the, the, the kind of, for what, I mean, for what you have said this afternoon in the 30 minutes, in the enlightenment, that we receive the kind of range of things that are possible that can be done that that truly put Islam in the in the in the in the true light. The both, you know, the purpose of faith that uh, Sheikh Hakim was talking about yesterday morning. That kind of a thing. I mean, there must be some sort of a network that comes together with that light. Be you know, I don't know whether it's. CMC can provide that, or, or you know, there's another another institution or, or, or coming together that can provide it. But that's the kind of a thing because it seems like you are a lone ranger in this. I am. Uh, I have. I've traveled, spent money on my own. But the thing with me is that I'm, I'm not stingy. A lot of people don't share the syllabus. Every mosque I went to, I said, listen, this is what I'm doing. You can take wherever you can. I'll take from yours. No problem. But I, I, but there are people doing this. But like I said, with the Batley and Bradford example, no one knows who's doing what. Only I know because I've traveled extensively and I know who's doing what. I know these people in Birmingham, they're trying to do the same thing as I am. Let's collaborate with them. So maybe I can set up a network. I don't know. Well, no, the thing is that if... if, if if it is one person, it's not. You you know that there's this concept of institutionalization, mm. and, and 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 what that means is, like, and, and actually it doesn't have to be big committee, big company. Uh -huh. like that. It, it it starts off from a very small foothold. All you need to do, I think, is come together with like-minded people in a very small way mm -hmm. in a network that actually. I mean, I believe that there is a, a, an alumni now of 70 people around here. And, and I don't know how they are in terms of, you know... Um, I, understand, I understand what you're saying, but essentially you can't do that because some mosques operate with committees, they have their own set syllabus. These guys are not going to take your syllabus on. The reason why I can do it, I am independent. Uh, and I can work myself. People who think that... And the other thing is, 
critical thinking. No, no one wants to teach that to kids. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. So if there's a if there's a syllabus with critical thinking, they're not going to take that syllabus on. So right now, all I'm saying is, if you like something in my syllabus, take it. If I like something in yours, and let's get the ball moving. Maybe in five, six years, we can have something you, like like you're describing a, a five-year good syllabus, and then you can tweak that up and stuff. But right now, there's things that are happening. They're launching, but uh, I think it's early stages. What people are doing now, they are publishing Islamic studies syllabus. A lot of people are doing that. My problem with that is that just deals with Islamic studies. I want a broad syllabus with history, critical thinking. No one's doing that. Number two, a syllabus is fine, but the teachers are not there. Sheikh Abdul Hakim can develop a, a madrasa syllabus, right? But can people, are people there ready to te- have they are at that level to teach the syllabus of Sheikh Abdul Hakim? I, I feel not. So people are trying to address that, but I don't feel they're addressing the right question. I want a broad, good five-year syllabus. I think actually instead of, sorry, I don't want to talk about that, but instead of these uncles, yeah, they're actually probably more of an hindrance than a, you know, an enlightenment for, for, for the young people. But, but just like your experience in Turkey and with your children, you went to talk copy and things like that, there are, there's a very rich Islamic history in, in Andalusia. Of course. Okay. And, and, and that can be brought to life. To do, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is all in the syllabus, power of history. And so that's what, yeah, inshallah, that's, that's the plan. But it just, uh, uh, I mean, the, the you, you, mashallah, have very nicely explained all the positive negatives and challenges. And uh, I think the uh, important thing is that we will, we would all have, it's easy because it's nice to have suggestions, but important thing is because you set the role model. I think you have, and uh, yeah, what you're saying, that that's the model of the mosque, because Prophet we can get as near to. Can I ask one, uh, as one of the, your challenges that you have, because do you have, do you consider, because you're concentrating on the, on the children, which is very important, the future Kumar. Is that mosque where you are, which mosque is that? Because I've been in Glasgow. Oh, Ziyal Quran. In the south side. I was there in 1990, but things might have changed. Because I can use that, mashallah. Anyway, the, the uh, Mufti Sam, is he still there? No, he's, he's, yeah. he's not. But anyway, the people, the, 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 what did he say here yeah, before that special and well respected religion of the ladies in the mosque? The reason is because they are, they, I tell you before, what you are looking for, you will get a lot of sisters. They have spare time, very intelligent, they will be more supportive. And, and uh, because I give the example from you, because I, I work in Chester. We went to uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakimah, Ali Murad. Anyway, he, 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 yes, he, he, he's, he's the one, and he would always say is that because teaching and welcome power. He was saying, the sisters can perform much better role. They have much better communication. We the men are more aggressive. The reason I'm saying that because, although that because we are, it, it is, I don't know, it's that culturally before we are, after 50% of the Ummah, we are excluded. A, that there's no proper provision. Some also will say the women are not allowed. Some are allowed and they're just boxed off. But they're not, it's not a main hall. They can't go mm-hmm. to the main hall for the, for the, for the men. And they go to the, some dark room somewhere, 
and, and I think that's because yeah I think they've problems since 20 years but I mean what I've tried with the classes uh, I've got girls and boys and I've got more girls in the class than boys and also I feel that girls are more alert uh, they're, very, uh, they're yeah. more critically engaged they have much more clever answers so right up to sort of school leaving age <coughs> not so well right now I only have year 7s and 8s and I've limited the class to 25 because, to be honest, more than that you can't teach properly. Mm-hmm. But when we go into second year, they're going to go into second year, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to have the first year. So my aim is to, to keep the batch until about the 16, 17 get into uni. Mm-hmm. So they have an intimate link with the mosque and with the imam, and, and they're thoroughly grounded. And then we have in Glasgow something called the I-syllabus, mm-hmm. which is taught in the evening, so you can do the university during the day and, and, and do the evening. So there's a, there's a continuation of, of studies uh, that I can do them, but uh, yeah, w- women are very important. Um, uh, there's more sis- uh, girls in my class than than boys, mm-hmm. and I, I, I very m- I stress on that. I wish that because my my family in Canada, I have in my lifetime because my, my father was a scholar. Mashallah. And I've been, I have really struggled in in this country for the last 25 years, over 25 years. I don't know how long I've been here, <laughs> and, and to to find a mosque. Yeah, they are respectfully, comfortably allowed. Yeah. Myself and wife can, can go. And I always give the example because I'm very happy to go with you because yeah. in Canada, Mississauga, they had a mosque. It's a beautiful mosque. And it, 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 the two doors, both sides, equal car park, one for the sister, one, one for the brothers. And in the main mosque, the main, the one hall, and there's just a wall, uh, men in the front, and there's a three foot wall, and there's a gaps. The children can go, and I've seen such a harmony, and we have a bookshop, both for brother and sister, and they're two months, and after the Juma or even the evening prayer, they both sit for one hour, and, and everybody has access. Mm. So, and, and I was very amazed, I thought, who, who did that? They said, because the sister did this one. I mean, I think one of the things maybe is that a lot of you kind of professionals need to take a stronger role into the mosques. Right now, the committees are run by uncles who are taxi drivers, and so they don't have this vision. I think there's, there's a criticism to the more affluent, educated class of Muslims in the UK. They didn't take that role. Even with the imams teaching kids, we, we should have had Muslim teachers who teach in schools. They should have come and help the imams. This is how you teach. This is how we teach, and we know the system and stuff. This is how you do it. And then doctors and lawyers who, who can sit in mosque committees change it. Unless we're going to have that, nothing's going to change. So you need to be more engaged with the mosques, otherwise uh, there's no change. Okay. I think in order to change attitudes of mosque committees, because imams don't have much power. No, no. Yeah, yeah. The imam doesn't have much authority. I mean, I am unique because it's my dad. As our mosque, we have no committee, so alhamdulillah, but we can most do But most, no. And, and, and that means you need to change the attitudes of the mosque committees yeah. or the community so that they have an eagerness to change the madrasa. So perhaps there's mm-hmm. a need to show the accomplishments of this sort of approach and spread it wide to parents uh, to show that you know uh, we want our children to be like this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because I, 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 I've been working, I was working in Australia before this, and they had the same problem there uh, of importing imams with, with, with very negative attitudes. You know, I mean, uh, they put a South African imam who wouldn't even speak to women. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of, 
So, but and then to change the madrasa system yeah. is is really difficult. But you need to develop attitudes. Um, some there is a there is a, a, a diploma course or certificate course from Canada about Islamic education, which changes, uh, which teaches moral and uh, uh, values. So it's it's a value based education. So, but what I'm thinking in Britain, we need to sort of create the demand mm -hmm. uh, first before before there can be change. I know uh, in Queensland when uh, Imam Rain died, he was of Indian origin. He was an unpaid imam who established the Brisbane law. When he died, uh, the whole community came. The police commissioner had to stop all the traffic uh, for going to his room. That was the impact of his that imam on the community. He was so linked with the non-Muslim community. I don't see that in, 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 in Britain. And I see the imams running around in baggy pajamas uh, and, and the young kids going to the East London Mosque in Thobes. Uh, I don't see this in, in Britain. I don't see this uh, need, need for identity with, with, with Britain. It's really, you know. Uh, no, I understand. The problem with that is the mindset. I finished from CMC and I thought, yes, I'm going to be the bastion of British Islam. I'm going to go to my place and read Juma in trousers and shirt. So I did that. Half an hour later, I had five people criticize my, uh, the, what I was wearing. So I thought, all right, okay, maybe they're not ready for a radical change. So they, the week after, I wore a Turkish jubba on my trousers and shirt. I still had fingers pointing, why are you wearing trousers and shirt? This is not your uniform. The police have a uniform, the imams have the uniform. The imam uniform is this. <laughs> and so now I pray with the thaw, I should want because the people are not, are not, are not, not ready, ready for, for it. Not, not ready. Number two, when you said you need to change the attitude of the community members, I have a prime example which is Glasgow Mosque. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to share that with you because the media have been all over it. Mm -hmm. The Glasgow Mosque was run by a bunch of uncles and they, they, they said they were catering for all the Muslim community but they, had, they were catering primarily for the Dubandi community. So we had the process of changing the mindset of the committee. So we, had, we started something like the I syllabus 10 years ago. Alhamdulillah, we had people who had studied the I syllabus, who were professionals, now wanted to join the Glasgow Mosque com Committee. They came in. Then there was a huge uproar. The Charity Commission got involved. The police got involved. It was mad. If you want, you just type in BBC Glasgow Central Mosque. Yeah, so that the young guys now got threatened, they've, they've got kind of families got threatened, all the young guys, and now they were, they were I-syllabus guys, their aim was, we're going to make it more inclusive, they did an excellent job, I was going to be brought in as a third imam, so two Diobandis imam, one non-Diobandi imam, just to cater for the general public. The, they got threatened, so they left, the old uncle committee has come back and they scrapped all new plans and we're back up. So there was a try to change of attitude by changing the committee. It didn't work. Perhaps it has to be done more gradually. Yeah, Maybe. Perhaps. I mean, we waited 10 years, so... Yeah, I sure. yeah. Just, just a comment, actually, on that. Maybe I'm trying to change attitudes. I mean, I was thinking, when you think about parents and they want to yes, send their kids to primary schools, and secondary schools, they tend to look at like an Ofsted report or they'll move to certain areas because the school is ranked good or bad or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there kind of perhaps a need for a Muslim to have, like, not an Ofsted for mosques, 
But like, let the free market do it. So if you sort of report on the mosque madrasa, parents can look at that and say, that's a rubbish madrasa, I'm not going to send my kids there. Mm. So if you kind of bleed the mosques that way, then send them to the good place. So Imams Online Faith Associates, I don't know if you've heard of them. So they've started madrasas.co.uk. It's like a trip advisor for mosques in which parents can leave feedback on mosques. So this is something which is happening. That's one thing um, mm-hmm. that's now slowly taking place. So you can go madrasas.co.uk where your kids study. You can write a feedback that, yes, a brilliant mosque is a brilliant teacher. So they, they started that, I think, three months ago, and, and they're trying to roll that. That's one thing they're, they're, they're trying to do. Yes, I'd like to add something that you've touched upon, uh, your parents as your role model. You as an imam go out to the community, you're a social worker there. As a professional social worker, I wonder where the parents are in all of this, especially the dads and the role models at home. So one thing someone told me was that when people come to drop their kids off, maybe you can have something for the parents. The problem is that the, the, the children I'm dealing with, their parents are still first generation, allowed to do 14 hours uh, in takeaways. Uh, the mothers are still four house, uh, housewives with uh, four kids. But it, that's what I want to do. Maybe even when the mothers drop the children off, they can sit for half an hour and we can engage with them. And that's something definitely on my cards. As for my father being a role model, um, he is in one sense, but one of the things, the things with the imams has been, they've always been linked with Pakistan, they've never really settled down here. Mm-hmm. So my dad never watched Sky News or BBC News, he'd watch a geo, four anchors screaming at each other, ye ora Pakistan, me ho ora. And one day my dad eventually, when he feels, he says one day, when that day comes, I want to retire and go back to uh, Pakistan. My father-in-law is a scholar, he's the same thing. They are, they are so detached from the British society, it's unbelievable. I, I can tell you this because I come from a, a family of scholars. They're so linked with Pakistan. And I think that's one wisdom why my dad told me to take the line. He said that, listen, I can't do what you're going to do. So you're going to carry on with the mosque and with the mission. I'm going to back to Pakistan. So the ulama have kind of themselves understood, we're not engaging with the community. We're too linked with Pakistan. We're going to do whatever we do. Once there's a good substitute, I'm going to leave. So my dad can do that because it's our own mosque. Other scholars maybe cannot do that. The way I said that, uh, your role model is because they were good people. Yeah, they were. What I'm seeing now are children who don't see their parents as role models. Mm. So yes, there was a thing about mm. heroes. Who are the heroes for the children? Is it the parents? Is it somebody in the community? Like your little boy who... Yeah, yeah, so that's one thing I'm trying to do. Yeah, so my, my, my relationship is like a friend, not like a, you know, Ustad comes in and you stand up and, you know, formal. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a more friendly uh, relationship I'm trying to do.